Welcome everybody to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase. My name is Joel Sedicase, and tonight we're discussing the subject of Christian universalism. And I want to start with a reading from one of the most popular descriptions of hell that there that there is in ancient literature. Uh, not exactly ancient, maybe we should say rather uh, medieval literature. This is from Dante's Inferno, and these are the words that were written above the gates of hell. Through me you pass into the city of woe. Through me you pass into eternal pain. Through me, among the people, lost for I. Justice, the founder of my fabric, moved. To rear me was the task of power divine, supremest wisdom, and primeval love. Before me, things create were none, save things eternal, and I eternal endure. All hope abandon ye who enter here. Well, these are the gates that are at the doorway to hell in Dante's Inferno. No, what I just read is not scripture. That's not even the King James Version. That's not from the Bible, and therefore it is most certainly not authoritative for us who would want to view the subject of hell and eternal destiny uh, in a biblical way. But it's actually surprising to find out how much of our contemporary view of hell is shaped by medieval literature and literature that really gets a lot of things wrong. Something's right, but a lot of things wrong. And Dante's Inferno is one of those books that I think a lot of people look to to help shape their conception of what hell is like and who's there and why they're there and, and what's going on there. If you've never read Dante's Inferno, it is really a fascinating book. Um, I recommend it simply because it's it's been so influential. But if we're going to get our doctrine about hell and about eternal destiny, we'd better do better than Dante's Inferno. We'd better do better than medieval literature. We'd better form our doctrine of hell and heaven and the afterlife on the solid rock of God's word. And as a follower of Christ and as a teacher of God's word, that's what I want us to get into tonight. And if you're a follower of Christ watching this tonight, uh, I want you to test what I say against scripture. And this would be a good opportunity for you to get out your Bible, to listen along, and to really see if what I'm saying is in line with God's holy and revealed word. Because while it is so good to have Bible teachers, there's no teacher like the Bible itself. And listen, I don't have a corner on the market of what God is teaching and what God is saying in scripture. And the great thing about the Bible is this wonderful doctrine of perspicuity, which says that the Bible is clear on the major doctrines. And let me tell you, the doctrine of heaven and hell and the afterlife, it is a doctrine that is that would fall into that category of clear, of, of clarity. So grab your Bible, open it up. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ and you're listening or, or watching to this recording, I want to really encourage you to have an open mind, even to ask God for an open mind to determine whether what I'm saying tonight is actually something that's going to describe you, something that is going to really need to get your attention because we are talking about what happens after you die. And my friend, there's one thing that I can assure you of, and that is that this life that you're living is not going to last forever. And so the question of what's going to happen afterward is one that you need to deal with and that I need to deal with, whether you have faith or not, whether you are a religious or spiritual person or not, you're on some kind of spiritual journey. And wherever that journey has taken you in the past, one thing we know is that at least for the present moment, your journey has led you uh, either to listen to my raspy voice or stare at my ugly mug for the next hour or so, a little bit less than an hour. And the powers that be, and of course, as a Christian, I believe that the powers that be are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have led you to this moment where you're going to be interacting with some of my ideas and and hopefully my ideas are going to be God's ideas. My goal tonight is to be saying what scripture says and thinking God's thoughts after him and hopefully we're going to get to the bottom of this subject of universalism and specifically Christian 
universalism. So what our goal is tonight is we want to compare and contrast biblical Christianity with the subject, uh, with the theology of universalism. So what are we talking about? What does universalism mean in religion? Well, it means many different things in many different religions, but what we're doing is we're comparing and contrasting universalism with the Bible. So Christian universalism, universalism that uniquely deals with Christian categories and Christian themes with the foundational document of Christianity, which is the Bible. Now, there's a great website out there called CARM, the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, and Matt Slick is the guy who runs that. And here's what he says about Christian universalism. He defines it as this. Christian universalism is the position that all of mankind will ultimately be saved through Jesus, whether or not faith is professed in him in this life. It claims that God's qualities of love, sovereignty, justice, etc. require that all people be saved and that eternal punishment is a false doctrine. Salvation is not from hell, but from sin. There are two main camps in Christian universalism. Again, this is Matt Slick and his definition of Christian universalism. The first school is this. Those who teach that the unrepentant will be punished in a future state and that their punishment will be proportional to the degree of sin committed in the mortal state, in other words, in this life. They generally hold that the punishment is moral and not physical. There is no hell. They do not maintain that salvation is merited through these sufferings. Then the second school is this. Those who teach that all the punishment for sin occurs in this life and that God's discipline in our lives is for the purpose of purifying us, though this purification is not our merit for salvation. In eternity, there will be a loss of reward for those who did not trust in Christ in this lifetime. Now, I'm going to be dealing primarily with the first school of Christian universalism, the one we mentioned just a moment ago that says that the unrepentant will be punished in a future state, but that that punishment will be moral. And ultimately, I'm going to be looking at the idea that that punishment will end and that those who experience that punishment in some sort of fiery trial or fiery environment a sea of fire, a lake of fire, will one day be released from that and will be reconciled to God. That is going to be the school of thought, the school of theology that I'm going to be addressing tonight. So the first question we have to ask before we get started is, is universalism a heresy? Well, what I'm going to be saying is this, universalism, Christian universalism is at least heterodoxy, which means it's at least a false teaching. In scripture or in Christianity, you've got orthodoxy, which means right teaching, and then you've got heterodoxy, which means different teaching, different than right, different than correct, not cutting it straight, not dividing scripture rightly. I'm going to say that Christian universalism is at least heterodoxy and potentially heresy. Believing in a form of Christian universalism is uh, is historically designated by the church, at least going back to the 300s, as something that's allowable within sort of your own private heart and private uh, home and environment, but not something that is publicly acceptable within the church after the 300s. Or I should say really after the time of Augustine, so right at the dawn of the medieval era. So, uh, but it hasn't been part of official church teaching or even speculative church teaching since the medieval era. And it is dangerous. I'm going to say that the Bible teaches a uh, a certain way of looking at the afterlife that makes universalism dangerous. It's dangerous because it devalues God's word, because it it doesn't take a deep enough look at Scripture, and potentially even is uh, accompanied by other views of Scripture, such as a view that would say that Scripture is not inerrant, not infallible. It maybe it contains errors. It's dangerous because it undermines the urgency of evangelism and it downplays God's holiness. It de-emphasizes the seriousness of sin and it may very well give sinners a false sense of assurance that they'll be fine if they don't repent. So is universalism a heresy? Potentially. 
at least it's not true. And at most, it's very dangerous to the church and potentially will cause you to get the gospel wrong. And uh, certainly will cause you to get the gospel wrong as you evangelize others. So um, what what are our main points going to be? Well, we want to, the goal is to refute universalism. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the biblical teaching on sin, also known as hamartiology. We're going to look at the biblical teaching of salvation, also known as soteriology. And then we're going to look at the age to come, also known as eschatology, the study of the last things and the afterlife. And then we're going to look at some possible objections to what I've said and hopefully refute those objections before bringing everything to a close. Now, if you're if you're watching this video and uh, it's if you're watching this live, feel free to um, feel free to leave a comment. And what I'll do is I'll attempt to address it as I go, maybe not address you by name or in person, but hopefully I'll be able to get to it as we go. And if you are watching on video, yes, I'm drinking from my happy face mug. And I did think that that was an appropriate one because universalists uh, claim oftentimes that their theology is more loving, but I actually think that the theology of the Bible, as I understand it, as the Christian church has understood it, is much more loving and and ultimately more happy because God wins. And God is good. Scripture calls God the blessed God, and blessed is another word for happy. Now, let's look at the biblical teaching on how men are saved. And look, again, when I say men, I'm talking about human beings. The first thing that the Bible teaches us, one of the first things of first importance, is that salvation does not depend on us. Actually, I said we were going to talk about sin first. So let's talk about sin. First of all, what the Bible teaches about sin is that sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against God. God is the ultimate lawgiver. In fact, he's the basis of all moral objectivity, all moral objective, morally objective standards. First John 3, 4 says that everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And so because God is the objective standard of goodness and that standard is rooted in his character, when we are sinning, we are violating God's character. And as image bearers of God, what, what sin is, sin is ultimately lying because it's an image bearer of God doing something that God would not do. And what that means is that we are creating and putting forward a false view of what God is like simply by the fact that we are image bearers of God who are not bearing God's image in in our actions. So sin is is false in the sense that it misrepresents God. Sin is lawlessness. Jesus talks about how sin will overtake your life. He says that anyone who sins is a slave of sin and that, by the way, that if the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. Praise the Lord. And so sin has a way of controlling our lives. Sin has a way of misrepresenting God. Sin, the the very word sin in Greek is hamartio, which means missing the mark. It's an archery term. And hamartia, hamartia, there it is, hamartia. Took me a minute there. But it means missing the mark. And so there's an imperfection to sin and it's a willful imperfection. The Bible talks about how we have all gone astray. We have all gone after our own way. And that was an intentional choice that we made. Sin was introduced into the world by our first father, Adam. You know, Eve takes a lot of flack because she sinned first, but Adam was our representative. And if Adam had not sinned, you and I would not have been brought into this world as sinners. But the Bible is clear, if you go to Romans 5, that sin entered the world through Adam, and that in Adam we all sinned, and through Adam death entered the world. The Bible talks about how the wages of sin is death. And so the biblical teaching on sin is brutally honest, and it is bleak. Sin is awful. Sin is terrible. Sin leads to death. 
And sin, if left unchecked, will ultimately control a person's life, will dominate that person's life. And if a person dies in their sin without having that sin dealt with, forgiven, washed, cleansed, done away with, then that person who dies in that state will enter into eternity, according to what the Bible teaches, still in sin. Now, sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against God. And a person who enters into the eternal state in rebellion against God, according to what the Bible teaches, which is what we're going to, which is what we're going to lay out, that person spends eternity in hateful rebellion against God. And James White, a theologian and apologist who's done over 150 some odd moderated debates, he describes hell in this way. We're going to talk more about hell, but he talks about hell as having essentially having the desire to sin and to do all the things that sin makes a person want to do, but not having an opportunity to do it. All the opportunity has been taken out. So the desire to persecute God's people, the desire to be selfish or to steal or to fornicate or commit adultery or blaspheme or uh, worship idols, all these horrible, nasty things that we all love apart from God. I'm putting myself in that lump. Uh, I'm part of the same lump of sinful clay that uh, that everyone else is but until the Lord took me from that and, and, and by his own grace made me born again. We'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. But if we are left in our sin and we enter into eternity, you can imagine the anguish of a soul that wants to rebel against God and to commit a, a, a sinful acts and has no opportunity to. They're in total isolation, total darkness. That burning anguish for all eternity is and would be and, and biblically speaking will be torment. It would be torturous. Now, we're going to get more into what the Bible teaches about hell and how long it lasts and things like that. But what we have to see is this is all the result of sin. Sin is serious. Sin affects all of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and sin leads to hell. Now, the biblical teaching on how men are saved. Well, what we have to see is that the Bible teaches that our salvation does not depend on us. Romans 9.16 says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is going to be so important for us to get because later on, if we don't see that salvation does not depend on us in any way, shape, or form, then what we're going to do is we're going to set up a seed for the false idea that that salvation does depend on us in some way and that therefore maybe there might be an opportunity for us to come to salvation apart from God's grace after death. So we have to see that what Romans 9:16 says is the biblical teaching. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, the will, the human will our volition is governed by our affections, by what we love. Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, we're going to be judged by our words because words are actions. They they are things, things that we're speaking, are things that we desire, and they reveal what our heart wants. And what our heart wants is called our affections. And our affections are the rudder that steers our will and ultimately that that steers our life. And the affections of a sinful person who has not been what the Bible calls born again, recreated, those desires, those affections love sin. And so if God were waiting around for human beings to come around on their own volition, on their own human will, he would be waiting forever. No one would come. My friends, you and I would not come to God. And so salvation does not depend on human will or work or exertion, but depends on God. There is no amount of hard work that could ever get you into heaven. Do you know that? Do you know that there is nothing that you you can't wish yourself into heaven? Because what you want apart from God, what you want apart from God is sinful. What I want, what I wanted apart from God was sinful. And so how does a person like that ever come around 
And because the Bible doesn't say that no one is saved. So how does someone come around to the point where they do become saved, rescued from their sin and from the consequences of their sin, including God's wrath, God's punishment? 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so if we take these two verses and compare and contrast them, what we see is it depends not on human will, but it depends on God's purpose. Not on human purpose, but on God's will. And we call that grace. See, we come to him because God has chosen to freely give us salvation and Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God chose to do that in eternity past, before the ages began. So before God created the world, before the space-time continuum was a thing, God chose to save us. If you are a Christian listening to this right now, God chose you before the creation of the world. Think about that. You, in particular, were chosen by God before the creation of the world. That is amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's amazing. But that's our God. He can do something like that. And he has. So God's not waiting on us. God's got a plan, and he will save everyone that he's chosen from before the creation of the world. So what universalism says is that everyone will be saved eventually, even if they die in their sins, even if they die having not come to Jesus. But what the Bible says is that God saves according to his own purpose. And if God saves according to his own purpose and plan, and if God chose us before the creation of the world, there is no reason to give someone an opportunity after death. Because the person who has died in their sins has missed has missed the potential opportunity and and there is what we're going to see is there is no opportunity after death but this idea that god would wait around for someone to get it contradicts the biblical truth that god has a plan to save that's really what i'm getting at here is that salvation has to do with god's plan not with mankind's uh free acceptance of god god's plan is sovereign all right, we're going to unpack that more as we go. But I, I really, I love that I, that idea that God chose his people from before the creation of the world. It's amazing. And I didn't come up with it. It's right there in scripture. Now, Romans 9.11 says this, that God's purpose of election will continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. See, God has a purpose in election. Election means choosing, kind of like In 2020, we're going to choose a new president. We're going to choose in the election. The word election means choice. And God is free to pursue that purpose as he sees fit. God is not waiting on us. Did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? I love that saying. I heard that from one of my old pastor bosses. And I I love it because it's true. Nothing occurs to God. Things occur to us. But God is the one who has planned everything out from before the creation of the world. And he calls those whom he wills, whom he wants, according to his perfect purposes. Now, we can talk at great lengths about Romans 9, and there are all kind of different interpretations of that and what the word election means. But one book that I would highly recommend is called The Potter's Freedom. It's by James White. I mentioned James White earlier, but uh, Dr. White does a great job of explaining how the calling, the election, and the choosing of God described in Romans 9 have to do specifically with salvation. It does not have to do with a vocation or um, an occupation. It has to do with salvation. I'm not going to get into the weeds with that now, but God's calling and God's choosing are certain and they are sure. And Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God chooses and then brings us into being through our mom and dad. And we come into this world and we live our lives. And what happens? Well, God's 
sovereign choice gets worked out in our lives in real time. And so if you are a Christian in your in your life right now, someone preached the gospel to you, but that was God's plan for you to hear the gospel. Now, if you're watching this and you're not, if you're listening, you're not yet a Christian, God's plan was for you to hear this. I'm not saying I'm God's gift to humanity, far from it. What I am saying is that the gospel is God's gift to humanity, and I'm here to present the gospel to say that Jesus Christ is your hope of being reconciled to God and that that's what you need. And if you were to turn right now and repent, have a change of mind, a change of heart about your sin and say, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for Jesus. I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose, uh, was buried and rose again for my sins, taking God's wrath so that I don't have to for all eternity. You will be saved even right now while you're listening to this. And if the Holy Spirit's putting that on your heart, there's no reason for you not to accept God's free gift. But it's God's plan. And it depends solely on God. God's purpose begins before you were born and it's carried out in real time in your life. And that that group of people who are chosen by God, we can call them the church, we can call them true Israel. Romans 11 says that there is a remnant chosen by grace. And in that passage, God is, as through Paul and his writing, God is talking about a, a select group of Israelites, ethnically Jewish folks, who have been chosen to belong to God, to come to faith in the Messiah. And uh, God's chosen people are not just ethnic Jews. They're not just Gentiles. They're, they come from all nations. And what's amazing is that God reveals the truth of the gospel and gives faith It's to folks who are not always the smartest, not always the most distinguished. It's not always the folks with the theological or philosophical degrees. Matthew eleven twenty five 25, and 26 says that God reveals his truth to little children. And then Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So you see, this idea that it's God's will that determines who will be saved, who will hear the gospel, and who will believe, it's saturated throughout all Scripture. God saves those whom he has purposed in advance to save, and it's due to grace. It's not earned in any way, and it's not a result of our having first chosen God. He chose us before the creation of the world, and he didn't choose because he looked through the corridors of time and saw who would chose to who would choose him. It says that it's God's sovereign purpose in election, not man's. And it's not God's response to us because God is the one who created us. God is the one who determined where we would live and when we would hear the gospel. And he made us. And Psalm 139 says that all of the days of our life, our lives were written in God's book before before one of them even happened. And so God is completely sovereign over our lives. And that means that salvation, being reconciled to God through Jesus, is purely his work. So what have we seen? We've seen that all men are undeserving of God's grace. God is completely free to choose. And that God sent Jesus to atone for his people. Uh, to atone means to make at one, to make sinners and God at one again. Um, another word that is sometimes used is propitiate. God propitiates his, uh, he propitiates his own wrath for our sin. The son propitiates the wrath of God. In other words, he satisfies the righteous requirement that sin deserves, which is punishment. And so God has a marvelous, wonderful plan to save sinners like you and me. And so universalism says says that all humans and and really even all moral entities at all, even there's even a form of universalism that says even Satan and the fallen angels and demons who have completely rejected God, they will one day be reconciled to God as well. But they just need more time and they just need more purification. And if they were to just spend a couple thousand years in the fires of hell, well, that would bring them around. But here's the thing. 
The idea that a thousand years or however long in a fire of any kind would bring a dead sinner to life, which is what the Bible says is required for salvation. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And even if you view that metaphorically, uh, it's it's a metaphor for something bad. It's a metaphor for some kind of inability because death is death. To say that a sinful soul just needs a couple thousand years in the the purging fires of hell in order to come around to God, that negates the depravity and the spiritual inability of mankind. And it totally diminishes the inability of of man to please God. See, Romans 1, 1 through 6 refers to faith as, as obedience. It talks about how Paul and the other apostles brought about the obedience of faith among all the nations. The picture that's painted in scripture is that when you believe in the gospel, you are obeying God. God has commanded mankind to obey the gospel. And so when you believe the gospel, you're obeying God. But the Bible says that in Romans 8, 8, it says that the mind controlled by the flesh, meaning the mind that has not been born again, has not been saved by God, is unable to please God. Well, what pleases God? Obedience. And so the mind that's controlled by the flesh cannot obey. That means that the mind controlled by the flesh is unable to believe the gospel. And so if you put a mind like that in the purging fires of hell, if that's what hell is, which the Bible does not say, but even if that's what hell was, that mind would only grow more hardened by that experience and would, apart from God's grace, God's saving grace, that mind would not turn and repent and come back to God. And so this idea that universalism teaches that all sinners need is just more time and that time frame ought to extend after death, that's not supported by a biblical view of man. And so it's very difficult to make a positive case from Scripture for that aspect of universalist teaching. Now, furthermore, the Bible explicitly teaches that not all are saved. This is a sobering truth. It's a sobering teaching. Now, I'm going to look at that in a minute, but... What does this mean for those, what does everything that I've just said so far mean for those who would hold to a more Arminian view of salvation? Those who believe that it's it's man's free will, libertarian free will even, meaning free to choose one or the other, at liberty to choose one or the other. What does the biblical doctrine of salvation mean for our free will and for the Arminian view of free will? Well, it negates it. Mankind does not have the kind of free will where he can arbitrarily choose, and it would have to be arbitrary because it can't be influenced or controlled by any exterior force. So mankind does not have a freely floating will that can vacillate freely between two options, between God and not God, between uh, truth and, and error. Instead, what the Bible says is that there's two options. You're either controlled by the flesh or you're controlled by Christ. If you're controlled by the flesh, you will freely choose. So don't hear me saying that we're not freely choosing things. We are. The Bible talks about man's responsibility, but that responsibility is there, but the freedom is freedom constrained by our will. And so if you're in the flesh, controlled by the flesh, you will freely choose always to act according to the flesh. That's why Jesus says it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so if someone is in the flesh, unsaved, they will act like an unsaved person. You and I, if you're a Christian, before we became Christians, we acted out the desires of the flesh, of course. And it was distasteful to us to act any other way. One comparison I always make is to that delicious delectable delicacy known as liverwurst. A liverwurst is the worst. Uh, my dad, when I was growing up, used to love getting liverwurst sandwiches. And you take this liverwurst, and if you don't know what it is, it comes like in a sausage form, and it's like paste. And actually, the 
the French word for it is pâté, which sounds better but doesn't taste any better. And you, it, it means paste. And you take this pâté and you take a knife and you spread it on a cracker or whatever and you eat it. And I used to always be fascinated by this when I was a kid and I used to always want to try some. And I would ask my dad for some and I'd eat it and ugh, oh, it's disgusting. It's gross. And you know what? If you gave me a choice to this day to eat pâté, to eat liverwurst or not eat it, I would tell you, no, that is disgusting. I choose not to eat liverwurst. Now, am I technically free to eat liverwurst? Of course. Yes, I can do it. I could do it. But you see, there's an analogy here between this food item that I don't like and choosing God. It's a crude analogy, but bear with me. Just like I could choose to eat this food that I don't like, in the same way, technically speaking, naturally speaking, any human being could obey God. It's it's possible to do so. But morally speaking, we will not. And a better analogy than liverwurst might be something like volunteering to be killed for no reason when you have a perfectly good life. Volunteering to have someone hammer your thumbnail with a hammer if you don't like the killing metaphor. It would be awkward. It would be unpleasant. It would be painful. And and no one would choose that voluntarily. Well, choosing to follow God, when you don't know God, when God has not given you a new life, feels and sounds unpleasant and scary and people don't naturally choose it. So something internally has to happen. We have to be changed. And this is why I can't get down with Arminian theology is because it puts the it puts the freedom on the side of man as opposed to on the side of God. It makes God respond to man's free choice, which biblically speaking doesn't exist in the sense that they want it to, instead of putting all the freedom on God's side. So what does the Bible say about how many people will be saved? Does the Bible even teach, potentially, that all men will be saved? Well, we're going to look at a few verses that appear to teach that at first glance. But first, let's look at Luke 13, 22 through 30. It reads like this. He went on his way, that's Jesus, through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Now, this is a rich and dense passage, but there are a few things that jump out at us immediately. And one of those things is this. It's in the context of someone asking whether or not those who are saved will be few. Now, they're not asking, they're asking something a little bit different than what we're asking in this conversation about universalism, because for them, they're thinking of salvation in terms of works. And they want to know if enough people are going to earn salvation to say that, It'll be many or it'll be few. Will many people earn it or will only few earn it? And Jesus flips the table on them. And Jesus is fond of flipping tables. If you go back and listen to one of uh, to the first Sons of Thunder episode, we talk about Jesus uh, flipping some tables. Maybe it was the second one. But Jesus turns the table and contravenes their expectations. And he doesn't put... he he doesn't really mention good works here. Instead, he talks about entering through the narrow door. He he talks about entering through the narrow door and the narrow door is Christ, faith in Christ. And then he says that there will be a time when the master has risen and shuts 
the door. In other words, there's going to be a time when the the time for salvation, the opportunity for salvation has gone away. It is done. It is gone. And there will be no more opportunity. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly answer their question as to whether or not it'll be few or many who are saved. But one thing he does say is that it won't be everyone. There will be folks on the outside, on the outside who do not come in. And there will be some who assume that they're in, like the religious teachers and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who are out. And there will be some who think that they are very holy, who make it in, only to find out that they are actually least in the kingdom of heaven, only getting in by the skin of their teeth. In other words, they trusted in Christ, but maybe they didn't live for him in a fully consistent way. That's I I don't want to make assertions and then not follow them up, so we're going to leave that aside for now um, and not not go deeper because we'd have to go much deeper. But the biblical teaching is that not everyone will be saved. There will be some who will be judged. And what does the Bible teach about that judgment? Well, it, it teaches that the judgment is fair. It teaches that the judgment is final. And it does teach that the judgment is conditioned. First of all, the judgment is fair. Romans 2, 5 through 12 says that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So you see, this is it's it's fair and square. It's even Stevens. If you seek for yourself everlasting life and glory and honor, you will receive it. Well, how do you seek those things? How do you get to the point where you want to do what is right, where you want to honor God and, and to be honored in God's presence on that last day on judgment day? you have to be born again. You have to be recreated. Jesus says in John 3 that you must be born again. The alternative is to be stuck with this hard and impenitent heart. But fair is fair. And if you remain with that unpenitent, uh, impenitent, unrepentant heart, you will get the judgment due an impenitent heart. And when that door closes there will be no more opportunity to repent. So if you're watching this and you're not yet a Christian, I'm going to urge you that today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. If you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, repent today and trust yourself fully to Christ. Romans 9, 22 and 23 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for in, for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. See, Paul paints the picture from a divine perspective, from a God's eye view, that there are those who remain in unrepentance and in their sin, and, the, and it talks about how he compares them to vessels of wrath. That in Romans 9, Paul talks about how God is like a potter and we are like clay and God is forming some vessels, some clay vessels for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Now, the honorable use is, is akin to a vase. And uh, God is going to, what do you do with a vase? You fill it with with something beautiful. You decorate it. You paint it. God, out of his own freedom and own own sovereignty is adorning some sinners because we're all sinners. We all come from the same sinful lump of clay with glory and honor and immortality and others with dishonor and shame. And what Paul is saying here, he says, it's interesting because he says, what if God does this? What if God has some suffer, uh, some remain in their sin. Why don't we put it that way? In order to accentuate the beauty of his salvation to those whom he is bestowing his grace upon. What if God were to do that? Well, Francis Chan in his book that he wrote with Preston Sprinkle, and that book is called Erasing Hell. 
when he talks about this passage, it's really cool. Because what he says is, what if God is doing that? You know, what What if? He says this, what if God decided to do this? What if God, as the sovereign creator of the universe, decided to create vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did so in order to show his wrath and make known his power? And what if it's his way of showing that those he, showing those he saves just how great his glory and mercy is? What would you do if he chose to do this? Refuse to believe in him? Refuse to be a vessel of mercy? Does that make any sense? Would you refuse to follow him? Really? Is that wise? Paul's point is not to raise a hypothetical. Now, this is me now, not uh, Francis Chan. Paul's point is not just to raise this hypothetical. I heard the argument recently that Paul refutes this hypothetical in chapter 11. He doesn't. Paul raises this hypothetical in order to show you and me that God is free to do with his creatures whatever he wants to do. And what Francis Chan points out is that God understanding God's freedom and God's sovereignty shouldn't turn us off. If anything, it should show us how weak and limited we are and how humbly we ought to come to God. Because if God is free to act this way and we have the rest of Scripture testifying to the fact that there is one way to heaven and that this life is is our only opportunity, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation, then we ought to humbly come to the God who is completely sovereign and submit ourselves to him and subordinate ourselves to Christ humbly and accept this free gift. God's grace and forgiveness is a free gift. And in this Life, we have the opportunity. If you've heard the gospel, you have the opportunity to accept that free gift. But it's God. God is free to show mercy to whomever he wants to show mercy to. And judgment is final. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And what happens during that judgment? Matthew 25.46 talks about those who do not believe the gospel. It says that these will go away into eternal torment, but the righteous ones into eternal life. And so judgment is conditioned. Judgment is uh, ju- judgment is conditioned in the sense that um, you earn judgment for sinning, you earn condemnation for sinning, but you earn, you have salvation earned for you. I almost said you earned salvation. You do not. No one earned salvation except there was only one and they crucified him. His name is Jesus Christ. But your salvation is earned for you by Jesus. And if you have repented and trusted in Christ, then your name is written in the book of life. And in Revelation chapter 20, it says this, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. In other words, what they did during their life, according to what they had done. And... Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And so uh, the, the, the very underworld where people are waiting right now, waiting for judgment, is thrown into the lake of fire. And so there is a temporary place of waiting and a temporary place of fire. It's known as Hades, uh, also known in the Old Testament as Sheol. But according to Revelation, that realm will be, that space will be thrown into the lake of fire. It will be thrown in. It'll it'll uh, be destroyed in an ongoing destruction and in eternal destruction. And then it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, who are those whose names are not written in the book of life? Again, we're talking about how how judgment is conditioned on our sin. A judgment depends on having sinned. Salvation depends on having Christ pay the penalty for you. And Christ has paid the penalty for you if you've believed. But Revelation 21, 8 says this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Hear me when I say this. Scripture does not leave room for someone to leave that lake of fire to receive faith, to access God's grace, to stop hating God and to 
repent and turn and to go from the lake of fire to the city of God. It's not there. You can't make the the positive case. And so we have to see what scripture says about judgment and about hell and about the finality of judgment and the fact that there is not a single person in hell who loves God or would repent apart from God's saving grace. Hebrews 12, 14 says that we are to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is a prerequisite for entering God's house, for entering God's kingdom, for entering heaven. So those who say that someone could come to faith in Christ after years of being in the lake of fire, and this is what universalists will try and teach, are saying that there is a way to achieve holiness without which no one will see the Lord, will see the Lord in the lake of fire, that they will somehow achieve holiness in that state. But there is no way to achieve holiness apart from faith in Christ and apart from God granting you that faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, not by works so that no one may boast. And when it says this, it's talking about grace through faith. The grace that saves you through faith is all the gift of God. It is not from yourself. Even your faith and the grace that operates through your faith is a gift from God. And so, and even the idea that that a human being could be apart from God, could be under God's wrath, which is how hell is described, and still somehow within themselves come to a place where they would trust in Christ, that is that is a doctrine that exalts man. It says that sinners can come to holiness apart from God. And not only that, but it, if sinners can come to a state of holiness apart from God, then that means that those of us who have been sanctified, who are being sanctified by God, which means uh, being progressively made holy, could have done that apart from God. And that is that is false. We could not have been justified before God and come to a state of holiness, even progressive holiness, even imperfect holiness, apart from God. Now, I want to get into the arguments for universalism because we need to we need to refute those. But what I'm going to do is this, because we're at we're at 55 minutes, and I want to I want to keep these episodes um, uh, lower, uh, shorter. There's the word. You know, hell is eternal, but I'm trying not to let this podcast last that long. So what I want to do now is this. Let's take a quick break. If you want to continue hanging with me, uh, I'm going to get a refill on my coffee. I'm going to come back and then we'll talk about the possible refutations to what I've just said. And it's not going to be an exhaustive list, but I want to deal with some of the most prominent ones, some of the ones that I think are the best. And I want to accurately and fairly represent the other side because I think that's so important. What's the point in refuting something if you're not going to accurately represent it? So I'm going to take a quick coffee break. You can hang out. If you want to hang out, I'll be right back in about three minutes. And then this will commence episode two of, um, of this two-part series. <laughs> 